Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. In the summer of 2003, I moved into a house located in the North Druid Hills area of Atlanta. It was your classic 1960s split-level ranch with a big yard in a quiet neighborhood and was a nice change from the dorms in downtown Atlanta that I had lived in during my first two years of college. The house was being rented by three guys I had known for many years from my hometown of Noonan, Georgia, and honestly, I was a bit nervous moving in at first. I guess I was a little worried about the dynamic. They were five or so years older than me, and as a teenager, I had really looked up to those guys. They were all really cool, you know, way cooler than me, and I was probably really intimidated by that. But nevertheless, I did move in and lived there for about a year, and though it would not end particularly well, see episode 19 for more info, the summer I moved into this house would perhaps be one of the best of my life. Now a house containing four young men in their 20s It is almost certain that a lot of silliness would ensue, but it was also a really creative atmosphere. All three of my roommates were musicians, and my roommates Jeremy and Shane were in a band that practiced at the house pretty often. I quickly learned after moving in that during these practices, it would be really difficult to concentrate on anything else because the entire house would just shake. I think that's when my other roommate Eric and I started going outside to play badminton, which then turned into just about an everyday occurrence. We all got really into it. I just remember drenching ourselves in mosquito repellent and going out to the backyard and having these long testosterone-fueled matches. There was a lot of shit-talking involved, I'll admit, but man, those were good times. My roommate Shane was also a film student, and I remember at some point him needing an idea for a short he had to make for his editing class. So we came up with this concept of a badminton match that turns deadly, which in turn inspired me to create a song for its soundtrack, and thus was born the band Captain Cool and the Shuttlecocks. And even though this band has only one song to its credit, It's probably the best-named band that I've ever been a part of. The whole experience of recording that song and making the short with my roommates was so much fun. I mean, it was really great how everyone really committed themselves to this really stupid idea. I think it also taught me a valuable lesson in that regardless of how silly a premise may seem, when friendship and creativity are involved, It is nearly always a worthwhile pursuit. And I feel that it's that same sentiment that is at the heart of the Rob Crow and P. Hicks project, Optagonally Yours. Now, I first came to the music of Optagonally Yours through my fascination with this mysterious instrument called an optagon. The first mention that I remember seeing of an optagon was, I believe, in the liner notes of Summer Hymn's excellent 2000 record, voice brother and sister. But really, I had no idea what sounds on that album were being made by this instrument. When I continued to see Optigan pop up on other liner notes of records that I really loved, I decided to investigate. And in doing this, I eventually found my way to the website of Optigonally Yours, 
a two-person band utilizing the Optigan as its main musical backing. And then I heard the undeniable earworm that is Mr. Wilson, and I knew this would be a band for me. So I eventually got myself a copy of their 1997 debut album, Spotlight on Optigonally Yours, and loved it. Fast forward some years later, I would hear my roommates listening to music, and when I asked them what they were listening to, they said Heavy Vegetable. I said, oh, that's the band with the guy from Optigonally Yours. And my roommates were like, no Brent, Optigonally Yours is the band with the guy from Heavy Vegetable. So I rolled my eyes, went to my room, and put on Spotlight on Optigonally Yours. And like a number of times before, I listened. This is the story of that record. My name's P. Hicks. I play the Optigan in Optigonally Yours. My name's Rob Crow. I play the instruments that aren't Optigan and sing in Optigonal Yours, and we co-write. P. Hicks would spend his childhood in San Diego, California, with Rob Crow moving to the area from New Jersey around the age of 12. And it is at an early age that both Hicks and Crow would gain an interest in music. I wasn't really interested in music per se, but I had a tape recorder and I would mess around with recording sounds. And then uh, we inherited a piano and I started doing little sound recording experiments with the piano. And uh, my mom decided that uh, since I was the youngest child and we had a piano now that uh, someone had to learn how to play the piano so I'm the one that got uh, chosen to take piano lessons and uh, that's just kind of how that got started and I just you know once I actually learned some things about how to play piano and I started doing a lot more stuff and eventually got a little Casio keyboard and more tape recorders and just Mostly I was always just interested in experimenting with sound. I was never really much for, like, writing music. It was more just doing... I mean, I was doing music, but I was more fascinated by sound than I was by music, really. And then it just kind of snowballed from there, I suppose. I pretty much always wanted to do band stuff. I mean, when I was a little kid, it's the first thing I ever remember wanting to do was play music and taught myself guitar and like one year for Christmas I got a little crappy Panasonic mono tape recorder you get back in the 70s and I would record everything with it you know um, and I was you know do little radio shows or do little you know every dumb thing I could you know try to put together I would record a lot of like stuff off the TV like for instance HBO started playing Over the Edge, and I was so blown away by that that I, like, I would 
record all the songs off the TV and then I would jam the, the little tape recorder in my my little bike and just ride around New Jersey with a tape recorder jammed into my bike listening to the songs recorded off the TV of Over the Edge. When Gary Newman came out, I was really stoked. And I was I was really into like anything with a synthesizer and anything that was like loud with lots of guitars. And then I got into the Who when I was a little kid and I was just nuts for all that stuff. Like any big crazy thing with a synthesizer and loud guitars, I was into that. And I kind of still am. Yeah, that was my thing too. When I was a teenager, I was pretty much only interested in music that had synthesizers, electronic music. I didn't like any bands that had guitars or real drums or anything like that. <laughs> Eventually, Crow and Hicks would begin playing in bands around the San Diego area, and it is through the local music scene that the two musicians would meet. P. Hicks and I met sometime in the late 80s, early 90s. Early 90s, I think. When P. was in Tit Wrench and I was doing Heavy Vegetable, and we had a lot of close friends in common, and I don't know, we just started hanging out, and then we ended up living together with a bunch of other weirdos. That was a house that, uh, I mean, over the course that we had that house, it was a rental. There was probably 30 or 40 of us that shifted in and out of that place over that time. It was all just mostly uh, music friends, band friends, you know, art people, you know, it was just all our kind of, you know, anybody that you associate with in your 20s pretty much was... I'm sure most people have have that sort of experience unless they get married super early. <laughs> it is at some point in the mid-90s that Hicks would happen upon an optigan at a thrift store, spawning a two-decade-plus relationship with the instrument. When I was a teenager, I uh, was sort of like, you know, anything to do with keyboards and synthesizers, you know, I was interested. And so I always, uh, I had a subscription to Keyboard Magazine, and one time there was an article written by Bob Moog about the history of sampling keyboards. And he talked about different things like the Mellotron and stuff. And he briefly mentioned something called an Optigan. And he described it as this sort of toy keyboard that used... Um, discs that had optical sound waves encoded on it with different kind of instrument sounds. And I was like instantly like fascinated by that idea. Like I had never heard one, never seen one. All I had was this brief description in a magazine article and the name of it stuck in my head. And I just figured it was some really super obscure thing and I'd never see one. But the name of it stuck in my head. And about 10 years later, this would be the mid-90s, I'm going to say about 1995, I was in a thrift store up in the Bay Area, up in uh, Oakland, and um, kind of going through this thrift store, and I passed by this really ugly brown home organ. Something that I normally wouldn't pay much attention to, but I looked at it, and it had the word Optigan written on it. And I immediately remembered that. And when I read that article in Keyboard Magazine, I had a particular kind of um, 
idea in my head about what an Optigan looked like. I thought it was something like a small keyboard, like a Casio that just used discs. But I saw this organ and it said Optigan. And, and my first thought was, oh, well, maybe this is something that they made like a home organ version of the thing. And I turned it on and it made this really spooky sound. And I was like instantly hooked, but I didn't see where you could put a disc into it or anything. And so I thought, well, maybe this is just a weird version of it that just is like, it just makes this one sound and that's all you get. Either way, I was like, I, you know, it had like this spooky piano sound and these spooky drums and I just loved it immediately. I had to have it. And so I bought it for 50 bucks and I threw it in my car and I drove it home to San Diego. And it wasn't until after I got home that I discovered that the the front panel opens up and there was a little storage area that had a bunch of discs in it and there was a place where you could put in where you could put the disc in, you change the disc. So what this thing is, is the word optigan is a combination of optical and organ. So it means optical organ. And it came out in the early 70s. It was made by Mattel. And um, they were looking for a cheap way to make a toy organ without involving a lot of expensive electronics. And what they came up with was... It was kind of a modification of the talking Barbie idea where you would have, you know, a, a bit, some basic way of sound playback in a toy. And for the Optigan, they decided the cheapest thing to do is to take a disc made out of film and to encode soundtrack onto the disc the same way that optical soundtrack is encoded on film. In other words, kind of wavy lines that get picked up by a light detector and uh, turned into sound. And on an Optigan, you have a disc with concentric rings of soundtrack, and there's 57 different rings. And all the sounds that the thing makes are encoded in these rings, and the sounds are sort of in three categories. You have a limited number of kind of wildcard sounds, and they're sound loops, which are usually like drum loops and stuff. And then you have chord buttons, like C major, G major, that have a different um, kind of uh, rhythm section groove, and each disc has a different style of music, so bossa nova, country, rock and roll, whatever, polka. And then the rest of the soundtracks are each individual note on the keyboard, which is like a 37-note keyboard, and usually it's like organ sounds. The thing about these sounds is that they're all essentially what these days what we would call samples. But back then, you know, they didn't have a word for it. They were just recordings of real instruments cut into loops and turned into rings of sound on a disc and you put the disc in and it spins around and you press the keys and it just turns on whichever the corresponding loop is for that key or that button. It was a kind of a novel concept at the time but it was actually a relatively cheap thing to implement compared to lots of um, electronic circuitry. But the end result of it is that the sound quality is very low fi um, 
It's essentially sort of like 78 RPM record sound quality. So when you play a song on an Optigon, it's almost like you are playing a song and you're controlling a song playing on like an old 78 RPM record. And it just has this really spooky kind of haunting sound to it. Following his purchase of the Optigon, Higgs would begin making music with Crow, utilizing the instrument's unique character as the project's focal point. Basically, once I sort of got this Optigon and I was getting into it, my first thought was it would be fun to put together a little group or a combo to uh, play cover songs with this thing, you know, just go to the bars and and uh, just do cover songs with the Optigon. And Rob was, you know, living in the same house at the time. You know, we were housemates, and I just happened to mention this idea, and I'm pretty sure Rob's first response was, I will do that, but it's not going to be cover songs. We're going to do originals with this. And we got out my four-track, and within, like, an hour or two, we had our first four songs (laughs) written and recorded on four-track, and that was, like, the original four-track versions of the songs. And, you know, we, we pretty much instantly knew that, you know, we had, you know, something that we could do something with. I think those first four songs were Mr. Wilson, um, Nighters, uh, Dr. Smooth, and You're In My Heart. I'm pretty sure those are the first four songs. And again, those were all written and recorded within like an hour or two. I think we were even like just screwing around with the idea of doing covers and then just started changing it around. Well, all I remember is that it very quickly went from doing covers to doing originals, like it, within like 10 minutes. <laughs> it's exactly uh, quantified when that happened is that the beginning of You're In My Heart, which was the first song we started to write, is Adam and the Ants' Los Rancheros. <laughs> and then I just put different lyrics. Wait, you were you were trying to do a cover of uh, Adam Ant? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I remember you telling me that that's where that riff was from, but I didn't know you were trying to actually play that song. Oh, I was just playing it to play something. And then, oh, okay. Then, then right. we, but then it turned into our own song, thankfully, very soon before it was, you know, a complete hack job or whatever. Right. Well, I mean, we have done covers, oh, but yeah. mostly most of our songs are originals. And the whole time going, well, nobody's going to hear this. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we were just messing around, you know. There was no like intention to like, okay, we're serious musicians. We're going to sit down and make something real. We were just screwing around. After garnering some interest from the San Diego-based independent label Cargo Music, Crow and Hicks would begin work on a full-length record. He made little cassettes out of that thing because this was back in the day before computers pretty much, and before the internet, pretty much. This is when the internet was just getting started. You couldn't just burn a CD, or and you couldn't just, you know, stream a thing, so you had to go find something to put out your shit. So P made uh, some cassettes of those four songs, and they looked, and it was a little cute cassette, and we gave one to Cargo, and Heavy Rush was on that, and then Eric Goodis said, sure, I'll put this out. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, that's the way I remember it, was just, you know, you guys were on Cargo, and you gave one of those cassettes to Eric and for whatever reason he decided it was something fun that he thought you know we should put out and so we just said okay I guess we should record an album then so we just 
you know, by that time I had the ADAT set up and I think, you know, we sort of probably we first expanded those four track recordings of those first four songs onto the ADAT and which mostly meant that, you know, we had 16 tracks to work with and uh, my stuff at that time usually only took up two or three tracks uh, of Optigan stuff and then Rob was free to, you know, pile on as many vocals as he wanted. So that's why there's so many vocals on that record. And, uh, you know, honestly, like after that, it's kind of a blur to me. I mean, even at that time, we never we never recorded like in the same room at the same time together ever. We were recording on my ADAT rig, which was in my bedroom at the house. And um, I would just let Rob loose on that. And he would, you know, I'd do my parts. Rob would do his parts and then I would come back and uh, based on whatever Rob did I would maybe add one or two more keyboard parts to kind of like fill it you know kind of complement the melody or double the melody or whatever it was I was going to do and uh, you know Rob would have his guitar parts on there if, if there were any and that was usually pretty much it um, and then it's just ready to mix. I mean, so those songs came together really we fast. We just take turns being in the room while the other one watched TV in the living room. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. We definitely didn't overanalyze anything on that record. It was just like, okay, here's one. Okay, here's here's some vocals. Here's some lyrics. Okay, that's good. Next, you know, like I say, I don't really remember recording most of these songs. <laughs> the initial recording went really, really fast, but the the mixing because of that uh, because of the weird software issues we were having weirdly took forever. And also, it was always difficult for me to to mix this stuff in a way that sounded good because you had such a there was such a gap between the sound quality of the Optigan and the sound quality of the vocals and the guitar. And, like, you didn't want to, like, make the vocals sound lo-fi just to match the Optigan, because that would have been stupid. But at the same time, like, the vocals always had so much more bandwidth that it was always difficult to get everything to kind of sound like it was in the same space. All we had was, like, sound blasters and crap like that. And uh, and nothing could handle anything. So this album was mixed several times with this goofy kind of archaic software that kept fucking up everything. Like, <laughs> it, like P was losing his mind trying to mix things because everything would shift. Everything would shift everywhere, and it wouldn't sound like what we did. And he, you know, oh, it was a nightmare. I don't even remember exactly how I ended up mixing it. But in the end, they made a record. Thank you. 
Decoding the expectations of first-time listeners, Spotlight on Optagonally Yours opens with the slow and brooding track, Down. Featuring nearly two minutes of nothing but a steady beat with occasional percussive flourishes, the song then leisurely melds into a slightly psychedelic mixture of piano chords and hum and organ that when filtered through the distinctive voice of the Optagon, creates a unique musical backing for Crow's hushed, multi-layered vocals. I'll say about this song is that I don't remember recording it, but I do remember deciding that it should be the first song on the album because I assumed that people were going to come at this album thinking that it was just a pure sort of novelty record. And I wanted to instantly dispel that with something sort of like ponderous and gloomy right off the bat. <laughs> And sort of, you know, you know, whatever people were expecting from the record, I wanted to like dispel that immediately. And uh, the disc that's used on this is called Rock and Rhythm, and it's supposed to be like a rock and roll um, <laughs> disc. But I, what I did was I slowed the tempo all the way down, so you get this, you know, sludgy you know, like a rock band playing in the mud. And actually, I found out shortly after this that um, the same drum beat at the same tempo was used on the Tom Waits version of Hi-Ho, the dwarf song from that came out on a compilation record that Hal Wilner produced of old Disney songs. And uh, that was produced by Chad Blake, who was, you know, a guy that incorporated Optigan from time to time. And it's funny, a few years later, I hooked up with Chad Blake, and he gave me all of his Optigan stuff that he still had. Most of what he still had was he had an entire box full of factory-sealed copies of that rock and rhythm disc <laughs> that's on that song. <laughs> And I still have most of them. Um, so that's how that ended up on the Tom Waits record, because Chad Blake had like a million copies that he had gotten from somewhere. <laughs> anyway, um, the only other thing I remember was that originally, Rob, didn't didn't you write the lyrics in English and then somehow we decided to do it in French? I don't, well, I don't here's remember. the thing. I, I, I think I had recently just gotten into Serge Gainsbourg. And I wanted to do some like weird French thing. And we had this other roommate who was this English woman who spoke French. So I like wrote down some random phrases like the the plane is going down. It was also very like Laurie Anderson type of thing I was going for, yeah. I think. 
And um, something about crazy pants or something. Yeah, like there's monkeys in your underwear and shit like that. Right. Yeah, this animal. I mean, I'm sure it's bad French translations oh, yeah. too. So, so and we were who hoping French should tell us what what the lyrics of the song are because I honestly don't know. One of the things that made it fun for us, for me at least, was thinking about like some French person trying to listen to this and and going, what? Right. <laughs> when we used to play this song live, we um, did it as a medley. Like we did this song, and then we would segue into "Down in the Park" by Gary Newman. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Do you remember that, Rob? I don't think we have a. I don't think I have a recording of us doing that. But yeah, no, we would we would play like a, a shortened version of "Down," and then it would segue into "Down in the Park." I remember we would open with it, and I would shave. I don't remember that. I. Uh, I think I played bass for "Down in the Park," but yeah, you played bass. You played bass for sure. I no. That's crazy. I barely have a memory of that. You don't remember "Down in the Park." Barely, barely. I don't remember the shaving, so yeah, we're even. <laughs> so we are talking about like 25 years ago now, so. Regardless of the amount of effort the band claims to have put forth, is an expertly arranged slice of bubblegum sweetness. I think it was that song that that convinced us that we could do something with this concept other than just a straight up sort of novelty, goofy sort of residence type of thing. That's how I remember it. Anyway. And the Mr. Wilson I was referring to was uh, was uh, fucking what's his name, Jay North. Uh, what's his fucking name? From uh, Dennis the Menace. Yeah, that was like the. Ten minutes into the band, we'd, I, we I had written that. So um, that's the thing about you know, like like the lyrics to that song. There's literally only like three or four lines in the whole song, so there's not a lot of lyrics, <laughs> right? And uh, I like the fact that everybody thinks I'm talking about a different Mr. Wilson, whether it's Brian Wilson or or Harvey or Pete whatever. Wilson, Robert Wilson, <laughs> Robert Anton Wilson, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> There's lots of Mr. Wilsons that the song could apply to. I was just trying to get us into the um, Illuminati Chronicles, so... Right. I, I don't know if there's much else to say about the song itself. I mean, musically speaking, it's pretty straightforward. I, I don't really... Again, that was something that we wrote and recorded in like 10 minutes on the first day. So, uh, But the, all the vocals and everything came later, but like the basic recording was, um, you know, on the four track, we had the backing track, the chord buttons on the Optigon, we had the Optigon organ, we had Rob's guitar part, and we had one lead vocal, and that was the four track version. And I've still got that somewhere. I have to dig that out. That was uh, a disc called Here and Now, which was supposed to be sort of a kind of up with people kind of vibe. <laughs> um, sort of like a up, upbeat, sort of like uh, early 70s pop music kind of vibe. We, and we got to make a video for that song, which was the first video I ever right. made. And, and I like it. We <laughs> lean way too heavy on the Sparks thing, though. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, you can't, you can never lean too heavy. I mean, that's like, I mean, a lot of people don't even know what that reference is. I, uh, <laughs> I was thinking it leans too heavily on the unknown comic and the Shields and Yarnell references. <laughs> no, that's not the best. The video was kind of written and directed by this guy, Dave Sheridan, um, who was a friend of ours that... He's like the original, like Jackass, he's the original kind of Jackass thing. Like, they were inspired by that guy's show, Buzzkill, and what he did before that. Yeah, he was also in, like, a bunch of movies. He was like, if you ever saw Ghost World, he's the guy that, like, the shirtless guy in the 7-Eleven with the nunchucks. And he put it through real film, a lot of it. Or, no, like, the video. The story that he told us at the time... So we went up to this, the, the studio shots in that were at this, were shot at a porn studio in Van Nuys. And the curtains behind us, the gold curtains behind us were supposedly actual curtains from the Solid Gold TV show. And the video camera that he used was supposedly the exact same video camera that they used to shoot the... Um, the sequence in Spinal Tap um, when they're doing the flashback and they do this listen to the Flower People song, like the hippie song uh. that they did. Supposedly it was the very same camera, not the same model, but the actual same camera because it was the only one that still existed that still worked. Um, so that's why it has that sort of 70s kind of lo-fi video vibe to it. And then the rest of it was shot on 16mm film. Expander is a nautical themed number that once again features layered vocals from Crow, which nicely weave around Hicks' melodic organ lines. The 
disc on that is called Cha-Cha-Cha, not surprisingly, since it's a Cha-Cha. You know, I don't really have anything else to say about that one. Well, it was <laughs> named after the plug-in that we used on my vocals. Yeah, right, a compressor expander, you know... I don't know. You're making some kind of metaphor with that. I don't know. I don't know what the song's about. Uh, let's see. What was I? I it's I, about the ocean, like compressing and expanding. Right. I got to talk about bioluminescence and stuff. Uh oh. Oh, good. Out here on the west coast, like every season, we get this. Um, we get a red tide of this particular kind of um, plankton that is uh, bioluminescent and so you go out at nighttime and the waves are glowing blue and green but you gotta like shine your headlights on them type of thing no that's grunion oh okay that's the grunion you're thinking about the grunion i'm always thinking about the grunion <laughs> stop-and-start verses and snappy big band rhythm. Remo is an upbeat number about a contemptuous turtle. The disc that was used on this is called Champagne Music. <laughs> and it was a disc where the music bed on this, it was supposed to be a Lawrence Welk style musical accompaniment. And it was actually recorded by guys who were in Lawrence Welk's orchestra. Um, and it's, it's called Champagne Music, and when you hear that little cork popping sound, that's supposed to be the cork popping on the champagne. So, um, <laughs> I don't know if there's much else to say about this one. <laughs> I mean, it's a song about a turtle. Let's see, what we could talk about, what we do, like when we play it live, when we play live shows, I start off like a like my regular self, fully dressed and everything, and this and your regular self, where you know, wearing a Viking helmet. And no, stuff, no, no, so. no. That that comes later, I think. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. Okay. I just come out regular, and we do compressor expander, and then next we do this song, and that's where I start taking layers of clothing off. Yeah, he does like a strip tease during this song, and then comes the Viking. I think the Vikings next, right? <laughs> and and by the end of the show, he's just in a like a gold thong, basically. Right. Um, song like Remo is about, from my perspective. I mean, Rob can speak about his part of it, but from my perspective, it's about as easy as it gets because you're literally just playing a sequence on the chord buttons. I'm not even playing a keyboard part on that song. If we were gonna do a song like that today, I would probably agonize more about like oh i should add this and i should add this and but at the time you know we weren't really expecting to do much with this other than have some fun so if it sounded good enough just done really simple and basic in five minutes then it was good enough you know and so 
that's pretty much what a song like that is about. You know, I mean, again, it's probably something that we. It was wrote written in, in less time it takes to li- to listen to it. Yeah, right. That we've talked about it longer than it probably took us to write that song. <laughs> The track Nighters could easily pass as some long-forgotten soundtrack music found on a scratch record that was purchased at a thrift store for a dollar, or as some enigmatic bedroom pop masterpiece. So the disc that we used on this was is called Romantic Strings, <laughs> and I, I, it's another one of those ones where I slowed the disc down to like the slowest setting. This is another one of those songs that we did on the very first day that we, you know, kind of pulled the four track out and just wrote and recorded some songs. And again, we probably did it in 20 minutes. And uh, I don't know, Rob can talk about the lyrics. Uh, I was, I mean. My favorite kind of children's records were the, you know, the ones that were to put the kids to sleep type ones, which we like Sleepy Town Trains on this album too, right? Right. And uh, this is another sort of example of that thing. Like, it's not happy a, a happy horseshit song. It's <laughs> it's like, oh, this this is pleasant and real and not just fucking kitsch for kitsch sake like you could say about some of the other songs yeah at the end there what you're hearing is i'm just literally pressing down all the chord buttons all at once so you're hearing like every single chord playing all at once that the thing can play so The idea is that hopefully the kid is asleep by the end of the song, and then like those like those scary sort of uh, cacophonous chords at the end are going to be like nightmare-inducing or something. So. <laughs> well, in real life, like the end of the like record would have, and you just hear the the the, the, yeah. the kid sleeps to that. Which is also nice. right. That's what I always used to do. I mean, I when I was a kid, the the record that I would go to sleep to, I would put on side B of um, the album "The Flat Earth" by Thomas Dolby, <laughs> because it was mostly really sort of mellow songs. But the very last song on that side is a song called "Hyperactive," which is decidedly <laughs> not a mellow song. And so I would fall asleep, and then that song would wake me up. And then I would fall asleep again with the sound of the needle running in the run-out groove for the rest of the night. I would wake up in the morning and that, that needle would still be dragging in the run-out groove. 
I am the lineman for the county And I drive the uniquely warped take on the Glen Campbell classic, Wichita Lineman. Well, there was no doubt that if we were going to make a record, and, and it might have been one of the first things P like said when we when he dragged the thing out is that we have to do a cover of Wichita Lineman no matter what we do because P at the time just collected covers of Wichita Lineman and we'd listen to those in the car yeah <laughs> at that time and it, actually it's pretty much the same these days like I got all my records from thrift stores and garage sales like I you know I just wasn't really interested in shopping at record stores um and I started noticing that, like, a lot of these schlocky 60s and 70s records, like, Wichita Lineman was just sort of like, you know, setting aside the Glenn Campbell original, that song was just a standard at the time that, like, everybody did that song. And it was on a million different records. And I just started, and I did this with some other songs, too, but Wichita Lineman was one of those songs that... Anytime I saw it on a record, if I didn't already have it, I would I would buy it. And I kind of made a I'm pretty sure I made a compilation tape of like yeah, however many different versions of Wichita Lineman that I had. You had at least one that we'd listen to in the car all the time. Oh yeah, I had lots of different versions of Wichita Lineman. And so I guess we just decided that we needed to do a version of Wichita Lineman. <laughs> I mean, it's a great song, you know, so why wouldn't you want to do it? There there were a lot of songs like that that, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't necessarily a thing that, you know, if you were an, a musical artist that you would just write all your own material. It was a standard thing that if there was a hit song that you would cover it because it, if it was a hit once, it can be a hit again. And why not do your version of it? So... Like, everybody did Wichita Lineman. I mean, Glenn Campbell had the hit with it, but then once he had the hit, it was like a million people did that song, and that's true of lots of different songs. So we just want to kind of add our take on that one. Uh, that's a disc called Movin', <laughs> which is supposed to be like sort of like a R&B sort of Motown kind of thing. The, another side note about a lot of the material on the Optigan discs is that the earlier discs that they made, the material was recorded in Germany with German session musicians because it was a lot cheaper 
to record over there than it was in LA and since this was sort of an experimental idea they didn't want to blow a lot of money on expensive session musicians only for something that ended up being a flop so they're like let's do this cheaply and so they went over to Germany and you know it's funny because I have all of the original master tapes of this material and you listen to the master tapes and it's like you know, you hear, like, guys, like, chatting away in German, like, you know, in between takes, and then somebody gets on the mic and says, okay, Motown, take one, and they bust into, like, a quote-unquote Motown groove, you know, <laughs> like, Motown as interpreted by a bunch of German session guys that are being paid probably, like, five bucks an hour or whatever, you know, so uh, that's that's what that is, and again, it's, like, slowed down a little bit, so it's not... I don't know. I'm not sure why I chose that disc for that song, but I don't know. I guess it sort of works. <laughs> the Island Vibe of You're In My Heart is a track that prominently features twangy guitar lines and sustained organ notes with just the right amount of shrieking monkey for good measure. So that's a disc called Polynesian Village, and it's supposed to be kind of like a Martin Denny sort of vibe. Um, and one of the special effects keys on that has those howling monkeys. It was just like, you know, something that needed to be used. That was probably the first song we did, if I remember correctly, because like that was one of the sounds that was like, OK, well, we have to use this disc because it has these howling monkeys on it. <laughs> you don't you don't leave no monkeys on the cutting room floor, man. Yeah. That's a disc uh, Tom Waits used for Shirley, wasn't it? He used it for something. It's some, yeah, the, he used that disc on the uh, Frank's Wild Years album somewhere. I can't remember which song. But those monkeys are on the uh, one of those Tom Waits songs from that time frame. This is the one that I started off just playing Los Rancheros from Adam and the Ants. And then said, screw it, let's just make our own song out of it. And the lyrics are dumb and silly, but they're fun to do, like, they're the kind of, you know, every, when when we do stuff live, it's fun because every song has its own character, and you could be, I could be that character, and that character is pretty fun to do straight faced. I don't know. Uh, one little thing about this song that a couple of years ago, I collect lots of um, old home movies, people's home movies from garage sales and stuff. I just got a vast archive of them, and I found this one movie from the 50s of some little girls in 
kind of like hula outfits and doing little hula dances and I thought this would make a good video for you in my heart and so I took the opportunity to do a kind of a fresh mix of the song and um, I found something buried this is this is definitely one that was from that original four track tape because I, I discovered that on the vocal track um, one of our other roommates, I assume it was Jeff Code, was playing Atari in the background. And <laughs> you can hear you can hear like the Atari playing in the background of the vocal track. And in in the version that ended up on the album, you don't hear it, but um for this new mix I decided that really needs to be bumped up. So I bumped up all of the little Atari sound effects. And so if you go onto YouTube and listen to the version that's with the video on YouTube, you can hear all the little Atari sound effects in the background. Was it like Clown Downtown or something? I don't remember. I don't know what it was like. Demons to Diamonds or something like that. I don't remember what game. I, I don't recognize the sounds, but it's definitely like Jeff Code playing Atari in the background while you're trying to record the vocals in the living room. The the roommates <laughs> of that house, we we'd go out every weekend and to thrift stores and collect. More, buy it. We would buy Atari cartridges because at the time, like they were like plentifully available everywhere. Every thrift store had a whole bin full of Atari cartridges, and we had like a mountain of them. And we're always trying to we're always trying to find Chase the Chuck Wagon, <laughs> and never did. But we did get yeah, a lot Chase of cool the Chuck Wagon. And not and because Clown we Downtown wanted to sell like, them or anything on eBay. We just really wanted to play those games. Yeah, eBay didn't exist yet, so. Um, we would find out about these obscure ones and we would just sort of like dream about finding these like totally obscure Atari cartridges. And uh, we just ended up with like a mountain of like uh, Atari cartridges and Atari consoles. Just like there was a whole mountain of that stuff in the living room. To the point where we had another friend that we'd go to his house and he would take all his furniture away and we'd play like real life four player warlords oh, with yeah. a recess ball in his house. Oh, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, real life warlords was four player was warlords. Amazing. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> next song. <laughs> <laughs> nursery rhyme-like cadence. The track Hugs is a sparse number that evokes a sort of childlike innocence through its simple lyrics celebrating a love of nature. The, I think the disc on this one, let's see, this would be, the disc is called The Blues Sweet and Low. <laughs> except, it's, except on this one I'm playing it at a faster speed than it's supposed to be played at, so it ends up up-tempo, but it's supposed to be like this slow, dragging blues quote-unquote blues sound and it just ends up not being that 
The Iroquois is straight up just a tree hugger type of thing I was going for. But like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm a tree hugger. Fuck it, I'll, I'll hug all this stuff. And it's just having fun with spreading love out there. And when we play live, we made these big group of cards that have all the animals on them and have little pictures of the animals. And we always randomly get somebody from the audience to come out on the stage. And I explain the rules as fast as possible and as confusing as possible. And like I say, when I point at you, start flipping the cards to the song. So a person that you know was just watching a band like 30 seconds ago is now trying to keep up with the song and flipping the cards. And I can't say the name of the animal until they show the card of the animal. And then I have to like tell them to stop and it's and then start and then stop. And they always end up confused and and weirded out, and it's a beautiful thing. Well, the whole reason why we did the cards in the first place is, is you couldn't remember oh, yeah. all the animals. No fucking way would I remember all that shit. <laughs> yeah, so you needed someone. Like, when we first started playing live, we had uh, one of our friends, Gabe Voiles, was um, sort of our accomplice, and uh, we called him the special effects rocker. And uh, he would always flip the cards for us so it would go pretty smoothly um, because he kind of knew the song and he knew what to do but at some point we decided it'd be funnier to get somebody from the audience and it's only rarely that we get somebody from the audience that actually knows the song Um, usually it's someone who's never heard of us before and they have no idea what they're doing so you know hilarity ensues and we always have to make a new set of cards every time because they get they get lost on the stage and they end up in the audience and people take them home. And like every time we do the song, we have to like, sometimes we forget. And like 10 minutes before the show, we're frantically drawing pictures of animals on pieces of uh, paper. With all this talk of animals, I feel that it would be a wasted opportunity to not hear what P. Hicks and Rob Crow's favorite animals are. And in case you were wondering about me, my top three are donkeys, bears, and ducks. Uh, I don't know if I have a favorite animal, like, definitively, but probably my current favorite animal would be the opossum, just because we have a bunch of opossums that traipse through our yard, and one of them just gave birth, and we've had little baby opossums, and they, they, the mama carries them around on her back, and it's pretty great. That's my current favorite animal. I think I would enjoy having a giant tortoise. I don't know. I have like three cats and 18 chickens and five children, so... When did you get chickens, Rob? Oh, my God. You've had chickens. It's a while ago. Really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. When all this shit is over, you got to get some eggs. (laughs) All right, I'll trade you some avocados for some eggs. numbers on the album and a true highlight of Spotlight on Opticon of New York. 
greatly demonstrating what one can accomplish even with a limited palate. Patio is probably my favorite track on this record. Yeah, we've never played it live. Never ever, and we and I never think about this song ever. And like I'm just looking at it right now, and going fuck, I don't know how that goes. I just played a little bit, little bit of it just so I remember what it is. The the I think I'll drink a glass of box of wine, which is which was a real thing that we do, twenty four seven. Yeah, but not pee. And then and then the thing about the line about the choco taco. <laughs> Uh, the disc on this song is called Bossa Nova Style, and one thing that's sort of a side note here is that um, many, many years later, that same disc was used for some music in Minecraft. So if you go on YouTube, if you look at the song Patio or anything on YouTube that features that same disc, there's just a million like kids saying, you know, Minecraft brought me here or something like that. I don't, I've never played these games. Rob, you would probably know better than I do. You're the video game. Kids and I play Minecraft all the time. Uh, apparently, I... this uh, the tune that the same disc, the Bossa Nova disc was used for in Minecraft is like a beloved like video game soundtrack tune, you know, uh, for people that never heard never heard our song before. I hear the discs all the time, and whether I'm, you know, yeah, when I'm listening to podcasts and when I'm watching something on yeah, TV, TV commercials and so stuff. I'm partially to blame for that because I put out the you know the sample library of Optigon sounds, and so a lot of people have access to them. Yeah, and I guess the another line in that song is about watching the military planes go by. While well, San Diego is a big military town with lots of military planes flying by all the time so we had that really good um hairdresser chair out in the po- on the patio as well right we had a we had a hair setting chair out on the patio a good place to hang out when a friend comes by at like five in the morning with a with a and wants to share a 32 a king cobra that'd be a fun place to go do it p hicks has never been a drinker i'm an ex-drinker but at the time we used to drink the the box of wine was you know, all like a box of wine was a cheap, great thing that we used to get into, and uh, especially because we just take the big silver bag out of the box and just have it around. But in that same house with those same roommates, <laughs> like one of them accidentally splashed pee in the in the eye, and and one of our favorite things to to say when we're talking about pee hicks is. I got wine in my eye. So was that me that did that? That I, was I you. Even, I honestly don't even remember the source of that. Was that me? Yeah. yeah. I got wine in I my eye. Wine. I got wine in my <laughs> eye. P. Hicks would like me to make the correction that it was in fact their friend Jason who originally said, I got wine in my eyes. Hey. 
Dr. Smooth with its slow-churning tempo and woozy big band loops has a certain oddball charm to it, musically evoking a late-night drunken haze. This is another one of those songs that we that we did on the very first day that we you know sat down to make some songs. Did I sing through a thing, or did I just do a voice? I don't know. I think you sang, you probably sang through like a like a paper towel tube or something like that. Yeah. Or I mean, you know what? You could have. It could have been through like a vacuum cleaner tube. I remember doing something like that. But when we do it live, I always build one of those you know uh, like vaudevillian things that make your voice go louder, which is what that you know that vocal sound right. came from in the first place. The the disc on this one is called Big Band Beat. And it's supposed to be like a Benny Goodman style big band sound. And uh, the same disc was used um, probably the first or one of the first examples of somebody using an Optigon on a record was in the 70s. One of the guys from Genesis. Oh, God, I'm blanking on his name now. Um, uh, Steve Hackett from Genesis had a solo album. And he had a song using the same this same Optigan disc um, called Sentimental Institution that is kind of similar to Dr. Smooth. We hadn't heard it prior to making ours, but uh, um, this was in the 70s. This would have been like 1975 or something like that. You know, the title refers to there was a knockoff version of Dr. Pepper called Dr. Smooth. And um, on the can, it said Dr. Smooth Secret Recipe Soda. And there used to be a tagline at the end of the song where, in fact, Rob, don't you still say that when we do it live? You say Secret Recipe Soda at the end? I do say it live. I didn't know it wasn't on the record. It was Jeff Code saying it, but we ended up taking it off for some reason. I I thought I said it. I mean, he would say it all the time. No, Jeff Code said it. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, it's not on the record, but the song is about getting like a sugar buzz off of dr smooth right yeah i mean uh, we had there was one of several songs about dr smooth that we just sing around the house like friday night and the feel right. right give me some dr smooth and we would just right. write friday night and the feelings right give me some dr smooth Secret <laughs> recipe soda i was doing the jeff co version we we would write jingles right. for things that did should not have jingles all the time and that was kind of one of them right yeah, Jeff Code was one of our roommates, you know, very good friend, bandmate, um, who, I don't know how you describe Jeff, a, a bit sort of like, kind of um, hyperactive. And he was always like, he got into a loop one time for about three or four years where he would incessantly sing Santa Claus is Coming to Town, just <laughs> constantly, all the time. I mean, you'd be sitting there and you would just hear it was just the sound of our house was Jeff Code out in the garage singing Santa Claus is coming to town. So he was the inspiration for a lot of this this stuff. Slightly deviating from the formula is the toy piano bounce of Stop Touching Me.
I'm not opposed to, it's not like I, you know, forbid anything other than Opticon, but it has to be something, you know, at least within the spirit of the whole thing. So yeah, there's Toy Piano on a few different Opticon Lior songs. The disc on this one is called um, Pop Piano Plus Guitar, and it's sped way up to like chipmunk level. Uh, the only thing I know about the lyrics of this song is that um, Rob, the way that he sang it, um, the lyrics had the word fucking in it. <laughs> and I decided that this should be that this should be a family friendly record and that we shouldn't have any swear words on it. And so I reversed the word fucking in the mix. Um which is just as good for something me. like just just be good just be glad that i didn't annihilate your whole fucking clan <laughs> but i reversed the word fucking oh man that's all i know about the lyrics of this song yeah rob yeah it was just a, you know the usual kids in the car just being annoying you know okay i here's a funny thing no never mind <laughs> what no say it here's a story uh, a quick story when I was a little kid, my dad used to tell me a lot of stuff that wasn't exactly true, but not exactly cruel. <laughs> like, he like he would tell mm-hmm. me stuff like, he did work for Van Munching and Company, but he would also tell me that he was one of the dudes that sang in the Heineken song at, on the radio or, or commercials or, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Just to be silly and probably just for me to go, you did not, except I would always go, wow, really? <laughs> and he used to tell me that you know, on PBS, on public television, they can say and show whatever they want. It doesn't matter. There could be, like, naked people on there. They could use whatever language. They just choose not to. And, like, I think there would even be, like, some kind of Blue Lagoon type of shit that would be on late at night. And you could sort of maybe see a booby or something. And he'd go, see? Or maybe Monty Python. <laughs> so, armed with this knowledge and never thinking to to, to question it, really... When P and I went on WFMU, <laughs> uh, which I also didn't know wasn't public radio, I just kind of thought it was. I <laughs> I was just like fuckity fucking up a, a blue streak, and then Irwin would get really like whoa whoa quiet and like you can't say that. I'm like what are you talking about? You can say fuck on the radio. <laughs> It's like no, you can't. I don't remember. I don't remember that. You don't. It's it's something this was, that I, uh, this was, we were. This was on Erwin um, Chusid's show on WFMU, and it was very. It was one of those things I think about that embarrasses me so very hard. <laughs> and it's all because your dad told you that you can cuss on PBS, right? And and I was like, but you can, can't okay. you? Like, well, of course he would know whether you can't or, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> uh. Well, you can't cuss on an Optigon Lior's record, and to this day, I don't think there's any cussing on any of our records. Is there? No, I don't think so. There doesn't need to be at all. There's no reason for it. Right, exactly. There's no reason for it.
As we near the end of the record, we get the dreamy and tender waltz, Sleepy Town Train. For myself, and I'm sure Rob is kind of similar, my thing about doing music, in terms of music that I'm a fan of, but also music that I do myself, I'm always looking for like a good balance between recognizable sort of um, universal kind of pop, whether you want to call it pop, you know, universally recognizable elements, like sort of equally combined with weird experimental elements. And like all my favorite artists, fit that mold. There's something recognizable and pop about it, but there's equally something alien and disorienting about it. And so I think that's kind of, you know, what we try to do with this band, too. Yeah, it, it, it has um, to come from the heart. It can't just be like, a look how silly I'm being. I mean, right. if I were to do shit like today, I would have even less silly shit on the record. I think that's because, like, we weren't really taking it seriously at all at the time we were just like yeah let's make a record it's just going to be whatever it's going to be one off you know at least that's what I the way I thought about it at the time is that we were just fucking around I mean I wanted to do something that I thought was worth listening to but I wasn't being overly like critical of it like nah this sucks you know let's not do that I don't think there's any songs from this record that were like outtakes that we just decided not to use I think we just used everything we recorded. Right. When we do this one live, the end is so emotional. Like, I really go for it. You know, if I'm doing my job, then I will sort of tear up by the end. Not fakely, you know, yeah. just be by going for it. And <laughs> always try to do this thing at the end so that I, I wipe the tear and then touch it to my tongue as, as the last, like, chime goes on. Ding. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, I'm tasting my tears. No, I never picked up on that aspect. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is another example of the Go to Sleep children's record. In fact, this was based on right. a real one called the Sleepy Town Train. Like, all aboard Sleepy Town that I used to have. And I don't think, and P found a copy of it, but I don't think he did until after the record came out. The disc used on this one is called Guitar in 3-4 Time. A lot of the best Optigan discs are the kind of the simplest ones that just have like a drum and like a guitar. And that's it. Because you can use it as like one element in the song and build build other instruments around it you know it gives you more room you know whereas some of the other ones it's like well it's big band that means you know it's going to be a big band song there's kind of no way around it you know um, but this one you know um it's just a simple acoustic guitar and some drums and and you can pretty much do anything with it you know you can add lots of other stuff to it <laughs> Go, 
Johnny Largo on the Snowball Special is a tribute song of sorts to former Optic and Spokesperson Johnny Largo. Johnny Largo was the guy that the Optigan company would send out to like trade shows to demonstrate the Optigan. He was like a virtuoso accordion player and they hired him to be like the razzle-dazzle guy to go and blow everybody's socks off. Like, here is what you can do with an Optigan. In parentheses, it would say, if you happen to be an, a virtuoso accordion player. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, so he was, he was the guy that they would send around. There was a promo photo of Johnny Largo. They did a promotional thing where they put him on a train. There was this train called the Snowball Special that was a train that went up to one of the ski resorts locally in the sort of like the outside LA area. And um, everybody that wanted to go skiing would take, I guess, would take this train up to the ski resorts. It was called the Snowball Special. For some reason, they decided that uh, this was the target market for the Optigan, so they put Johnny Largo on the Snowball Special, and there was this promo photo of him playing for a bunch of, like, skiers on this train. I just thought that that would make a good uh, subject for a song, and I said to Rob, I said, let's write a song about this picture of Johnny Largo playing on the Snowball Special. So there was another promo photo of Johnny Largo playing for... Um, a group of Cub Scouts. And so there's a line in the song that says, play the Opticon for some Cub Scouts, Johnny. <laughs> in my mind, he was playing the Opticon for the Cub Scouts on the train. Cub Scouts were not on the train. Uh, the train was a separate thing. But it doesn't matter. Um, the, the disc on this one is called Nashville Country. And, you know, at that tempo, it kind of had that sort of like train kind of chugging along sound. And so... I don't know. It was just another one of those throwaway concepts. And and it wasn't until after this that I actually met Johnny Largo. <laughs> and I played him the song. And, and um, I could tell that he didn't quite understand <laughs> what we were trying to do. He didn't flat out say that he didn't like the song. I think he just really didn't understand where we were coming from. Yeah, if you're going to write a song about Johnny Largo, in his mind, it should have been about his career as a virtuoso accordionist, not <laughs> some footnote where he was doing hack work playing this shitty organ on a train for a bunch of snow bunnies. Like, he, he was just like, why did you write a song about that? Like, I don't even remember that. Like, you should have written a song about me like shredding the accordion and winning the world championship. Maybe we should do that, Rob. Maybe we need to write another song about Johnny. Is he um, still around? Winning the world championship. No, he's 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 passed away now. But uh, I have his uh, his solo accordion record from the fifties and serious accordion shredding going on. It's pretty amazing. He he was the world champion accordion player. Anyway, that's the tale of Johnny Largo. That wasn't that was his stage name, by the way. His real name was Johnny La Padula, and um, oh, that was that was the thing. That was the thing that right. Okay, now I'm remembering when I met him and his wife, and I played them the song. Rob wasn't there, but in the recording, 
The last line of the song that Rob sings is, your real name's Johnny LaPadula, Johnny. <laughs> and, and I played that for him, and his wife goes, it's La Padula, not La Padula. And she was really offended that we mispronounced his, his name. So I think that's why oh, they didn't man. like the song, because Rob mis- mispronounced the name. He didn't, he didn't get the correct Italian pronunciation of La Padula. Now that would be what the song would be about. Get, get, to, work on, get to work on that one. I'm an idiot. Oh, God. I think it, no 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 I mean I I'll take credit for that cuz I think that's how I told you it was pronounced. I said his real name is Johnny Lapadula and you and and you wrote that down and that became a line in the song. <laughs> so, I'll take credit what, for that. What, how it's like the laziest lyric writing in the world. <laughs> Your real name's Johnny Lapadula. Right. I mean <laughs> we wouldn't write a song like that today, but at the time we were just like, Hey, we need an, we need we need an album's worth of songs. Let's just <laughs> throw them together. Oh my god. I think it's safe to say that the Johnny Largo song is nobody's favorite off the ground. Yeah, it might be my least. With its dynamic shifts in tempo and sunny vocal harmonies, Spotlight on Opticon Only Yours ends with the organ-heavy celebratory number, Bebo. good songs on the record that's what i always been one of my favorite songs on we used to play this one live didn't we we did play it live a few times but it could never really get the energy up that it yeah. that i wanted it to be for the it was quite long yeah and then and I'm yeah it's a bit it's fucking a pretty long song. raging like my guitar parts like all over the place and it's four minutes right long. yeah the, the organ tune on this is a little bit intricate a disc called Big Organ and Drums, which is sort of the, the uh, in, in Atari in Atari terms, 
the big organ and drums disc is to the Optagon the same way that the combat cartridge is to the Atari 2600. So if you have an Optagon, if you only have one disc, it's almost certainly going to be big organ and drums, which is, which is just a really basic disc that just has sustained organ chords and some drums, and that's it. And so, um, but the nice thing about it is that um, it allows you to play the chord buttons more musically um, than you otherwise normally would. Normally you'd play the chord buttons by just holding down a chord for one bar and then switching to another chord. But this one I'm playing them, playing the chord buttons like a keyboard where I'm switching the chords in a rhythmic way. Uh, that's probably why I like the song because it's kind of a more complicated use of the chord buttons. Obviously the coolest thing about the song is that it became a, a villain on Powerpuff Girls. Was it a villain though, or I think it was just a like a monster? Yeah, it was a monster on Powerpuff Girls. Right, there was an episode that had a a monster called Bebo that was sort of like a Tribble from Star Trek, except it grew to like Godzilla size. It started out as a cute little fluffy thing, and then it grew to like huge, and became a big monster. And his name was Bebo. Um, and Craig, the guy that created Powerpuff Girls, was I don't know how he originally heard our record or came across it, but uh, he was a fan of the record and he and he got the name from the song. But otherwise, it had nothing to do with the song. But <laughs> he just took the name, and then he asked us to do a song for the Powerpuff Girls record that came out. This was a couple years later, I guess. For the listeners that choose to stick around, Spotlight on Optagonally Yours contains a hidden track which is a found sound experiment based around the audio of an unknown child's rendition of a well-loved Dolly Parton and Whitney Houston classic. didn't really have any input on. I was collecting a lot of found audio at the time. So I was buying lots and lots and lots of cassette tapes and recordable records and and reel-to-reel tapes from thrift stores. Anything that looked like it might have a recording of somebody uh, recording like an audio letter or recording themselves goofing around or recording their grandma or recording anything not just like making a a dub of a of like a Sonny and Cher record onto a tape 
I was scouring the thrift stores looking for, and there was there's lots of it available. Um, to that end, I got to highly, highly, highly recommend P's record, uh, Lucas and Friends, which is just all that kind of stuff. I was starting to, you know, take these recordings and just thinking of creative things to do with them. I had this recording of this little girl singing the song, I Will Always Love You. She was like doing it because she heard the Whitney Houston version. And it was just a recording of her singing acapella, you know, just by herself on a cassette tape. And I decided to put some Optigan behind it. And I just made up my own chords to kind of fit what she was doing because I didn't actually really know the song. I just thought her vocal was interesting and I could do something with it. Uh, I used a disc called Latin Fever and I slowed it way down. And I just improvised and, you know, I did a few takes until I had something that I thought sounded pretty good. And that was the thing that gave me the idea to um, do a whole album of material like that, um, more of a compilation album. And so I put out this album, Lucas and Friends Discover a World of Sounds, that has more of that type of thing. There's people singing with me playing Optigan underneath them. Uh, but then there's also just people talking, doing like little radio shows. And it's just all found audio. Since it wasn't technically Optigonally yours, we didn't want to include it as like an official track. So we just put it on there as a hidden track. For the album art, Hicks designs the cover using images found on records he had previously purchased from thrift stores. Both the front and the back cover are stolen from other albums from like the 50s. The reason why we ended up using that front cover is because it was by a group called The Smart Set, and the name of the album was Informally Yours. I found that record, and I'm like, oh, we could just change that to Optigonally Yours. Um, I mean, the, the, the actually, the name of the band is a whole other thing where, like, that's something Rob came up with that I, and I really hated it. But we went with it because, again, we didn't, we weren't necessarily expecting this to be a lasting thing. It was more just like, hey, let's just do this, you know? Rob's like, the band's called Optigonally Yours, and I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> I mean, later on, I came up with the name Metallica, <laughs> which I thought would have been better, but... Since then, like years later, some other band ended up using the name Metallica. You know, it is what it is, Optigonally Yours. At the time, me and a bunch of people that worked at Lose Records in Encinitas, they would close early on Sundays. So we started this kind of like lounge, loungy act where we do just straight up standards, covers of like Stevie Wonder songs and just, you know, fun things just for us. And uh, that was called Your Best Love Melodies. So I was like, oh, was, we call it uh, Optigonally Yours. <laughs> Not right. the best, but whatever. Well, it is what it is. But it, the, but so what you're seeing on the cover here, actually, like that 100, that, that's like, you know, from the thrift store. It was a, I paid a dollar for the record. And that's like the price on there, that, that 100 is the price. And, uh, you know, just decided to use that. When we came to do the second album exclusively talent maker i found another album also called informally yours <laughs> and so we decided to use that for the cover of the second album so that's what the first two albums that's what they have in common is that the covers were sourced from records that were called informally yours um, and then the back cover is from a record called i think the record is called kitty time 
And again, the main thing I liked about it was that somebody did their homework on the back of it, and it was and it had all this tape. It was like taped. It was like a really beat to shit copy of this record. And somebody did their homework and drew it like there was like magic marker residue and the tape around the edges. That was the main selling point for me was this like layer of crud over this sort of idyllic image of these little white kids like, you know, playing in the playground. Um, anyway, I've still got those two, the two records that, that we used for the artwork on these. And hopefully they were both in the public domain when we used them because... All I know is we've never had anybody uh, try to sue us for using their artwork. <laughs> Cargo Music released a spotlight on Optagonally Yours in the spring of 1997. The experience of making the album, as well as new ideas to expand the initial concept, would lead to Crow and Hicks continuing the project. Now, Mr. Wilson was on like a CMJ New Music comp, and some people heard about us from there, and they heard about us in Japan because we ended up doing our second album like this. Uh, a label in Japan wanted to sign us for the second album. We did a tour of Japan in 2005, and it was a kind of a joint tour of Rob doing sort of a solo th band thing and Optigonally Yours, and we had great turnout for all those shows. Yeah. So somehow they heard about us in Japan. <laughs> The impetus for the second record was that there are two other instruments that are direct cousins of the Optigon. One is called the Chilton Talent Maker, and the other one is called the Vaco Orchestron. And we had gotten access. In fact, we borrowed John Bryan's Talent Maker, and we borrowed an orchestron from somebody else, from Zach Ray, who was Alanis Morissette's keyboard player. <laughs> <laughs> and so at the time, I did not own either of those instruments. I do now, but um, at the time, we were borrowing those instruments, and I thought, oh, here is our next way to expand upon the concept of the band without retreading something we've already done. So the second album, we decided, even though the band is Optigonally Yours, we decided there was going to be no Optigon whatsoever on the album. <laughs> but... It was still going to sound like Optigonally Yours because it was going to use these two other instruments, the Talent Maker and the Orchestron. And so that was the whole impetus for doing, at least from my standpoint, that was the impetus for doing a second record. Was it John um, Bryan that lent us the Talent Maker? Yeah. Huh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was his. It was the same one that you hear on the soundtrack to eternal sunshine of the spotless mind mm. and on the fiona apple records like it's the same talent maker and the same discs and in fact we put out our album before the fiona apple record came out and uh you know we had one of our songs used the exact same groove as one of the fiona apple songs but ours came out first so <laughs> anyway trivia and then the third record the concept was to not use the instruments at all, but to use material from the master tapes, from the studio master tapes from the Optigon sessions, which I had inherited basically from the guy who was storing them, and uh, piece together the songs on a computer using loops from that. And since that's all studio quality hi-fi, the concept became, you know, OI and hi-fi. And we started work on that record shortly after 
the second record came out in the year 2000. And <laughs> I mean, literally that record took us, you know, almost 20 years to actually put out like like 17 18 years later we finally put that record out <laughs> it's my favorite record that i've ever done started on a whim over 20 years ago after a chance encounter with a unique instrument rob crow and p hicks have been able to gain quite a bit of mileage out of a seemingly limited concept the music that inhabits spotlight on optagonally yours skews the listener's expectations of what a pop song can be, creating something that's equal parts catchy and peculiar. But what makes this record truly special is the sentiment it expresses, and that regardless of how silly a premise may seem, when friendship and creativity are involved, it is nearly always a worthwhile pursuit. I think the songs that aren't just straight up novelty songs that we did in five minutes um are good on this record i think there's um enough songs that sort of thwart the expectation of people who are thinking that this is like a comedy record or a novelty record like i say that's the reason why we put that like dirge as the first song on the record was to instantly tell everybody Look, okay, we know you think this is just sort of like a joke, but, you know, we're going to bum you out to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, that's the way I saw it anyway. I don't know if Rob would feel the same way, but that's the way I saw it. Oh, that's um, cool. <laughs> um, up until last week, I hadn't listened to the whole thing all the way through, probably since we made it. So I, I don't know that I really have much of an opinion about it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I totally dig it. I just wish I could have a new version of it that's remixed or... Reduxed or whatever. Well, but, Rob, you know I gave you all the tracks I know. years ago. So anytime you feel like calling <laughs> up those tracks and messing with them, you are more than well. The other thing that we've been talking about um, is going back and doing hi-fi versions of these songs, which we already did with Mr. Wilson. And that's something we could do because, like I say, I have, a, I have all the studio master tapes of the sessions for all the discs that were used on this record. And so we could do hi-fi versions of all the songs on this record. Um, maybe we will. <laughs> Even if it's just for us, it would be fun. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Rob Crow and P. Hicks for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy Spotlight on Optagonally Yours and more from the band at optagonallyyours.bandcamp.com. If you want to learn more about Optagons, I highly recommend P. Hicks's comprehensive website all about Optagons, which you can find at optagon.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this. <laughs>